You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Good morning, everyone. If we haven't met before, my name is George, and I'm part of the hosting team here at City on a Hill. Today's Bible reading will be from John chapter 6, verse 5 to 14. We're continuing with our series on the seven signs of Jesus in the Gospel of John, and today we're reading the fourth sign from John chapter 6, verse 5 to 14, the feeding of the 5,000. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thanks for having me. This is uh, one of my delights is to uh, talk about Jesus with people. Um, so uh, let's hook in. Today we're going to start with the test. Uh, if you're part of Restoration Church, you'd know that I do this kind of stuff every now and then. So uh, um, just enjoy it. That's the idea. Uh, but we're going to start with the test. What I'm going to do is going to put up a series of images and, and the images where you can see two different things in the image. And apparently the thing that you see first says something about you. All right, and you can determine what that is, but let's, let's go through them. Here's the first one. Put your hand up if you see a croc first. Put your hand up if you see a boat first. All right, so you need to meet those people, all right? For some reason, I don't know. Uh, put your hand up if you see a woman first or an old man first. Okay, all right. Here's another one. Do you see a car or a man with binoculars? All right. And, and then this one, do you remember these? I don't even know what this is. This is like magic eye. I never, I, have you, are you one of those people, it's, it's kind of like being a Novid, where, where you've never ever seen a picture in a magic eye illustration? That's me, right? It's like, that's probably a pink kangaroo swimming to New Zealand or something, right? Uh, I wouldn't have a clue. Um, today we're actually going to look at this passage today in John chapter 6, and, and the way that people are seeing, the way that they're looking, has everything to do with what's actually going on in this passage today, because it's a sign, and, and the point of a sign is to point to who Jesus truly is. It, it's, it's the only miracle that appears in all four Gospels. Uh, and, and it's a classic story. I just think it's a great story. There's a rising problem. There's a test in the middle of it. 
And uh, then there's kind of a, um, a resolution to it. And that's what we're going to look at today. We'll look at the rising problem, the test, and the resolution. So starting with the rising problem. Here's the situation. Jesus and his disciples have taken off for some downtime. The crowd have worked out where they are and they've followed them. Um, Matthew and Mark in their account of this story talk about Jesus having compassion on the crowd. The crowd was about 5,000 people, uh, 5,000 men I should say, plus women and children. So it could have been anywhere up to about 20,000 people. It's getting late, they're in a solitary place and the people were probably getting hungry or about to get hungry. Um, And this is a problem, right? This is a problem. And it's actually quite a gritty problem. It's not like 5,000 teenage boys that don't have an Xbox, right? Or 5,000 Optus customers who don't have a connection to the network, right? We're talking about food here, right? They're in the middle of nowhere and there's no food. What does it remind you of? Well, if you're thinking Old Testament, it reminds you of uh, the story of the Exodus, doesn't it? Uh, Exodus 16, the Israelites get rescued out of Egypt and they come to the wilderness of sin, an unfortunate name, but appropriate, um, and, and they complain because of a lack of food. Uh, in fact, they complain so much about the lack of food that they accuse Moses of taking them out of Egypt to kill them. That's how much they were complaining about a lack of food. And God speaks to Moses and, uh, and says, I'm going to provide some manna. Um, manna's going to fall from heaven and they'll have food in the middle of the wilderness. It's, it's this event, it's this Old Testament event that Jesus and John are kind of connecting to what's going on here uh, with the, uh, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Now, the interesting thing about this, and you actually find this in all sorts of areas across society, is most people can see what the problem is and there's a fair bit of unity about what the problem is. The, the place where people diverge from one another is what they think the solution to the problem is, right? Um, the nature of the problem, there's a bit of divergence there because people describe it different ways, but everyone has to work with the same material, right? So when you, you talk about, for example, things that go wrong with humans and people, everyone's looking at kind of the same thing. And as they start to diagnose what's wrong, it starts to diverge a bit. And then the solution gets, I mean, there's all sorts of solutions for how to fix things. The problem here is people don't have something to eat. Everyone can see that. The difference is how people are seeing the solution. Um, Hollywood's uh, loves a prequel, doesn't it? And, and what we miss out with John chapter 6 is a little bit of prequel, which I think is helpful from the other Gospels. It's not critical, critical to what John's doing, but it's helpful to think about it. Um, because in the other Gospels, the disciples have got some ideas about how to sort out this problem. Uh, Matthew 14, verse 15, send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Mark chapter 6, 36, the same miracle, send them away. Luke 9, verse 12, send the crowd away. You know, what's going on for the disciples here is something we've all seen before, and it's this, not my problem right? Not my problem. That's what they're saying. It's not our problem. They're the ones that need to get food. Like, you guys need to go and just get that sorted out. And I wonder whether you've ever been in a situation like that yourself, where there's a problem in front of you, and you just go, not my problem. Go and get yourself sorted out. Um, 
They should do something about it. Maybe the, the problem's too big or it's too complicated. Sometimes we don't even want our plans. Sometimes it's because we don't want our plans to get interrupted. I don't want to have to deal with this. This is not my problem. You go and deal with it. You know, and sometimes that kind of thinking leaks into the way that we actually think about God. You know, you probably heard that saying, God helps those who help themselves. Uh, what is that? that? That's kind of like saying that that's what God says. God says, not my problem. You do something about it and then I'll help you. Well, God's different to that. Um, if you read the, uh, the accounts of the feeding of the 5,000 from the other Gospels, one of the things that you would know is that Jesus has compassion on the people. Um, and the word compassion actually comes from a Latin word, which is compati. And compati means, in the Latin, to suffer with. That's what it means. Um, here's the truth. Jesus was never going to send them away to sort the problem out. And here's where it gets really personal. He will never send you away too. He won't do that. That's not how he rolls. Um, when, when you and I have a problem, Jesus doesn't automatically think it's not his problem. See, he's compassionate. And so the way that he thinks is... is he thinks kind of, we. <laughs> he takes your problems on. He takes my problems on. He's concerned about them. And so you, you could say it this way. Jesus makes your problems his problem. That's what he does. Um, the disciples say, send the crowd away. Jesus says, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Massive difference in language there and you better believe that Jesus thinks that way about everything that you're going through there's nothing where he goes well you better just go and sort that out and let me know when you're done he doesn't think it's someone else's problem he always thinks we and I wonder whether you believe that deep down or do you functionally believe God helps those who help themselves It's better to believe that he takes our problems on, not just because it's true, but that's a better world to actually live in as well. Uh, when you have a problem, he takes responsibility for it. That's the rising problem. Second thing that we see in this uh, text here is the test. The story moves on. Uh, Jesus uh, gets the ball rolling by asking Philip a really curious question, which we just looked at in John 6 verse 5. Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? I think he asked Philip because Philip's a local and he knows all the nooks and crannies and places where you can get food, potentially. In inverted commas, we'll get to that in a minute. Um, and Philip gets to work, right? He busts his calculator out, he punches it out. It's like, we're going to need 200 denarii. And a, a, a basic kind of labourer would have got one a day. So we need 200 days worth of labouring to be able to buy enough food for all of these people. And his brain just goes... Poof, Right? Goes, I don't know, where are we going to get that? We can't get that kind of money. So he's out. And once he's out, then Andrew comes along. And Andrew doesn't get mentioned much in the Gospels, but I love Andrew because uh, he just has this knack, whatever he's doing, of just bringing people to Jesus. That's what he's doing. So if you go back to John chapter 1, verse 42, he brings Peter to Jesus. And what's he doing here in John chapter 6? Well, he's bringing a boy to Jesus, right? A boy with a little bit of lunch. And, and you know, just, just as a side note, you could do worse than being like Andrew, right? 
It's like you don't have to be the guru. You don't have to know everything. You, you don't have to have all the solutions. You don't have to be able to fix people and fix their problems. You just need to be able to get people to Jesus. Like get him, get him, get her to Jesus. That's, yeah, that, I reckon that's awesome. Like if, if people in Restoration Church just had it in their heads, how am I going to get them to Jesus? It's like perfect. Like let's just keep doing that. Let's get people to Jesus. In this case... Andrew brings a young boy with five barley loaves and two fish to Jesus. He's a poor little boy. It's probably his lunch. Barley was cheap. It was eaten by the poorer classes. The loaves scarcely could be called loaves and the fish was kind of probably thrown in, in, in there to help the coarse bread kind of go down a little bit easier. And then this statement is made, this question, but how far will they go among so many? It's like same problem, right? Um, we don't have the money. We've got the kids' lunchbox. Neither of them are even close to what's needed to get this thing done. Um, what they have, their resources are woefully inadequate. And here's, here's what's going on here. Um, they can't manage their way out of the problem that they're in. That's what's going on. They can't manage their way out of it. And I want to go to the next verse after John chapter 6 verse 5 and, and just see a little bit more of what's going on and, and I'll just read verse 5 and 6 again. Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Jesus said this, this is what John tells us, to test him for he himself knew what he would do. Now I want to stop and just hang there for a moment and just think about that and, and ask you the question, uh, how comfortable are you with what is going on here, right? Because do you know what Jesus is doing to Philip? Is he sending him down the garden path, right? It's like Jesus was never going to buy food. And he's asking the question, where are we going to buy food? Jesus was going to do a miracle, right? So you have to ask yourself the question, if he's going to do a miracle, what on earth is he up to in this in-between bit? Why couldn't he even just dive straight in? Like, let's just get the miracle done, right? Let's get this food happening. Good question, right? Well, here's the answer. Um, testing is one of the means by which you grow up. That's what's going on here. And, and here's the bottom line. If you don't have a category for God testing people in the Bible, you're not going to understand about a third of it. <laughs> Probably. At a guess. Because um, he does it all over the place. I mean, you go right back pre-sin to the perfect Garden of Eden. What does God do? Well, he plants the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in there and says, don't eat it. Now, as a good Queenslander, I'm going, if it's got a mango tree in there, I'm good, right? But there is a test in there. And the test in there is like, don't eat it. And the point is that they're meant to pass that test. And the fact that a test exists before sin comes in the, into the world is, tells us that testing is a normal part of actually growing up. Um, and, and we know this, right? We know this through our own kind of lived experience. Anytime that you want to grow, you need to undergo testing. And there's moral tests and there's wisdom tests and there's skill tests. Um, my boys uh, have just had me in their sights for a while because... Uh, I have been very clear about being able to bench press more than them, <laughs> right? It's very important for a teenage boy to know that their father can bench press more than them, 
right? But they're actually at the point now that where they're bench pressing more than me, all right? Now, what do you do with a bench press? Well, with a bench press, you take a bar and you lie down on a bench and you put some weights on the bar and then you test your muscles by taking the weight off the bar and lifting it. Now, the point of testing your muscles is that you'd lift it. Like if you had never done a bench press before and you put like 360 kilos on the bar, it's like you're not even going to get it off the stand. And if you could, you're probably going to die shortly after that because it's going to land on your neck, right? Um, but what do you do with bench pressing? Well, you, you, and it's the same with all weights at the gym. It's like you just add more and more weight to it because you're testing your muscles more and more and that's how you grow them. The point of testing is to pass at the gym and even in the rest of life. My, um, some of my boys have learnt to play piano and they did their grades. And how do you get better at playing piano? Well, you learn a piece and then when you know that piece, what do you do? You get a harder piece and you, and you kind of test yourself. Uh, if you want to grow in wisdom, you need to have more and more complex problems thrown at you. If you want to grow in your ability to resist temptation, you need to have stronger and stronger temptations thrown at you. Um, here's the bottom line when it comes to testing. The purpose of testing is not to show you up, but to grow you up. And, and often what I find in the church when I talk to Christians is they think about testing as this thing that where God's going to show us up for being the sinners that we truly are and and we're going to get humbled by it. And look, I think that happens with testing sometimes, but it's actually not the point of it. The point of testing is you're meant to pass. I mean, James says this in James chapter 1, to consider it pure joy when you're tested. Why? Because then it's going to have all these effects and you're going to be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That's how testing actually works. And, and some of us probably need a bit of a brain rewire. So... Back to the story of the feeding of 5,000. Um, John is telling us about this test that Jesus is putting uh, the disciples through. Um, here's what I want you to do. I've got a question for you. And I want you to take 30 seconds to talk to the person next to you about it. Uh, here's the question. It's very simple. And it's not a trick question. People at Restoration Church know that they get trick questions from me. This is not a trick question. What's the test? What is it? If Jesus is setting up this test, what, what's the nature of the test? Can you have a quick chat? 30 seconds? Go. About 10 seconds. All right. I'm not going to ask you to call out from the audience because it gets really awkward if someone says something and then you have to say, oh, I'm not so sure about that. But I wonder what you got, um, what, what you think the test was. Here's, here's what I think the test is. Uh, the test is this. Will they look to physical things to re resolve the problem or will they look to Jesus? I think... I think that's kind of, if you've got somewhere near that, um, I, th I think that's kind of what's going on here. And I just want to say to you that that's our test too. 
it's not just the one that Jesus puts in front of the disciples right now. It's actually probably the one that he puts in front of us every day. Are you going to use the stuff that you've got around you to kind of manage your life and make it go the way that you want? Or are you going to look to him? You know, some of you go, well, I've got some stuff around that I can use and I've got some talents and abilities that I can use to make my life go on a in a good way, and I'm like, yeah, totally. They were given to you by the Lord, but you're only ever meant to use those things in partnership with him under his lordship, not on your own. Um, and if we're honest, uh, most of us know that there's quite a lot of times where we just use what we can see around us and try to manage our lives and make it go the way that we want it to go without even thinking about God. Anyone know what I'm talking about? I mean, I do. Right. All right, the resolution. So we had the um, rising problem, the test, the resolution, and this, this point's coming off the back of the second one about testing, and, and here's kind of the nugget from it, uh, the kernel of it. God will regularly take you into situations that you can't do without him. That's, that's what he does, right? He will take you to places... I want you to hear this. He will take you to places where he has intentionally removed the opportunity for you to manage your way out of it. This is a situation here. Too many people to buy food. The food that they've got is minuscule. What now? What do we do now? And I wonder whether you can relate to what's going on here. I wonder whether even you might be in that place right now. And let's just all be honest for a minute without being kind of irreverent. It's really irritating how God does that. Is, any, is anyone with me on that? Why are we doing this? You know? I mean, this happens for me. One of the hardest things for me as a, as a lead pastor is I've got to be across all of the details and also be the visionary guy at the same time. And it's like those things don't match up most of the time in the church. And it's a, genuine, it's a genuine challenge because I want God to come in and just give me all the resources I need, money, people, everything, put it all in a pile and me just work out what the vision's going to be. And he goes, no, what I'm going to do is I actually want you to go in this direction. You go, well, how am I going to do that? How do you do that? You know, in Mark chapter 4, there's a story of Jesus taking the disciples across the Sea of Galilee and, the, you know, the storm happens and they... They thought they were going to die. Here's a kind of opening verse in Mark 4.35. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. Now, do you think Jesus knew there was a storm coming? Of course he did. Right? He's going to put them in the oven. <laughs> right? That's what he's going to do. What do you reckon they did when they got put in the oven? Well... They did what most of us do and they tried to manage their way out of it, right? And then when they went to Jesus and he was asleep with his head on a cushion, Mark tells us, they're not even asking him for help at that point. They're just going, don't you care if we drown? Why did Jesus do that in Mark 4? Why does he do this in John 6? Because he does it the whole way through the Bible. <laughs> and it is annoying, but it's really good. It's really, really good. Think about Moses. Take him to a place where he can't do it on his own. Think about Jeremiah. Take him to a place where you can't do it on your own. Think about Joshua. Take him to a place where he can't do it on your own. 
You can think of character after character. Think about Gideon in the book of Judges. What's he doing? He's threshing wheat in a wine press. It's like, yeah, that's a really windy place to do it, all right? Like not, he shouldn't be there, but there's these marauding people that used to come in and just steal all their stuff all the time. So go and find this really gutsy guy who's hiding away, threshing the wheat, and he doesn't want to do anything like what God's asking him to do. And it's like, how's he going to do that? I don't, I don't know. Certainly not in the flesh, right? This is the test. The test is, what are you going to do when you get to a place where you can't manage your way out of it? Will you do your best to manage your available resources and get frustrated and anxious when you don't have what you need? Or will you look to Jesus? And here's what the disciples missed in all of this. Um, our rescue is embodied in a person. That is really, really important. Or, or to even kind of push it a little bit further, our rescue is actually the personal presence of Jesus. That's what it is. Um, our ultimate rescue in every situation is not the physical resolution of the problem. It is engaging with the personal presence of Jesus. That's what it is. And Jesus gets to work. He uh, takes the bread and the fish. He gives thanks. He multiplies it all so everyone has their fill, which is no main feat. In the Sondergeld house, I keep telling my boys they're eating their inheritance, and they actually are. Um, 5,000 men plus women and children, and we've got 12 basketfuls left over. It's amazing. Jesus can do amazing things, and he does do them. But we need to just be careful here to not get distracted by the physical thing that Jesus is doing, because if we get distracted by that, it turns Jesus into someone that can do some party tricks for us, right? And, and you actually see that kind of thing happening quite a bit in the Gospels is that people see Jesus as someone who can pull some party tricks. And what Jesus is saying here is it's not actually about the bread, it's actually about buying into me. And he makes these, this criticism uh, later on that, that um, people were only buying into him because they ate the bread and had their fill and they weren't actually into him. Why is it important to remember that we need to buy into Jesus personally and not just what he can do for us? because of this, because there's going to be times where you won't have what you think you need. It's a lot of churches that probably don't say that enough, but it's just the reality, right? You know, a simplistic way of applying this story is that God can do these amazing, miraculous things and that we should just trust in him and he's going to give you what you need, but who knows that it doesn't always play out that way. God doesn't always play ball. And there's a lot of people who have given up on Jesus because he didn't manage their world the way that they thought he should. But there's a problem with this, right? Because Jesus actually never promised to do that. He never promised to do that. I mean, I have never in all of my life heard Hebrews 11 be used at an evangelistic outing. It's like, okay, if you follow Jesus, you can end in torture, imprisonment, mocking, flogging, stoning, being sawn in two. Who'd like to give their life to Jesus? Uh, being killed with a sword, mistreatment, and so on. What's all that about? Does, does Jesus promise that if we trust in him that we'll get everything we need? Well, this is actually the answer to most of the questions I ask when I preach. 
yes and no. <laughs> right? And the reason why it's yes and no, a good part of the reason is that need is just a really messy word and it's a really slippery word and it can mean all sorts of things. If, if you said to me, Peter, will Jesus give you everything you need for the preservation and the flourishing of your soul? I'd say hands down, yes. Will he give you everything that you need for the preservation and flourishing of your body? Uh, I don't think he makes that commitment to you. I don't think he makes that commitment to you. He will make your body new again one day, but he doesn't say that it won't hurt now. What, what you can see in John 6 is that the disciples are transfixed on the physical uh, when they needed to be looking to Jesus. Uh, what, what is he saying? Well, it's, it's kind of saying the same thing that was meant to be happening back in Exodus with the manna, is that they're actually meant to look through the manna to God himself. And that's kind of what Jesus is doing here, is you need to look through the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 to see him. And here's just a, I wasn't going to say this, but here's just a free tip for you. When you look at things, you turn them into idols. If you, you need to learn to look through things to see Jesus. Even the, just the kind of innocent pleasures of life, look through it and see Jesus behind it. If you look at it, it turns it into an idol. If you look through it, you see Jesus. And this is what they're meant to do here. It's what Moses talks about in Deuteronomy 8 verse 3. Man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You're meant to look through bread to see God. You're meant to look through the manna to see God. You're meant to look through the feeding of the 5,000 to see Jesus. And Jesus goes on in John 6:35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But they couldn't see it. You know, we see in verse 14 and 15 of John chapter 6 that... Um, they start thinking that Jesus is actually this guy. He pulled off this stunt with the feeding of the 5,000. Maybe he's going to be able to free us from the Romans. It's kind of like, well, we had this one need over here that's, that was kind of the bread. Now we've eaten our fill of that, and now we'll get him to do this other thing for us over here. And he's become this party trick guy that does these things to help us out. There was something else that he could do for them that they found out about, and, and, and it wasn't about feeding on him personally. When I was a young guy, I read these, uh, this book by a South American preacher, and um, he's probably, probably has some sketchy theological stuff in his, his background. Um, but he, he said, he made this comment one day, and he goes, how do you become one with a cow? That's like, oh, that's weird, right? Now it's, it's just you're weirding me out, right? But he, and, and his answer was, you eat a steak. That's what you do. And, and the steak goes into you and then it nourishes all of the fibres of your being. And I don't, I don't talk about being one with cows when we do communion at Restoration Church, but can you see the communion thing? Is that, is, it's like, what are you doing? You're saying by faith, the body and the blood of Christ comes into me and it nourishes the cells at a cellular level in my body. And this is what Jesus is wanting us to do with him, being the bread of life. It's, it's about... Him and us, I mean, you see it in John 14 to 16. It's like there's all this stuff about being one and being like super, super near to one another. 
I'll ask a couple of questions just to close. Do you, do you know what it's like to not thirst in the center of your soul because you're feeding on Jesus? You ever had that? Where everything around is just a mess and it's like, I'm okay. Because I'm, I'm near to Jesus. And I wonder if you've had the opposite one too, where it's like everything around you was okay, but you weren't okay. You ever had that one? It's like everything's okay, but I'm not okay. Because you're not near to him in your soul. Do you know what it's like even for a second to not be hungry in the centre of your soul because you're enjoying Jesus? Do you know what that's like? And Acts 6 talks about... Um, Stephen getting stoned, which is a different kind of stone than most people think of. And, and he sees the Lord and his face shone. You see, that, that is a picture of feeding on Christ and being near to Christ when everything around you is falling apart. And he's steady at that point. This is the kind of life, the kind of nourishment, the kind of stability that Jesus is wanting to bring to you. I'll finish with this. The uh, band are welcome to come up. John Calvin's got this beautiful little line that he uses in his commentary on Ephesians. And it's this one. The proper condition of creatures is to be near God. The proper condition of creatures is to be near God. Let me tell you what the proper condition of a dishwasher is. It's to be connected to a drain, to be connected to water and be connected to the power point. That's the proper condition of a dishwasher, right? The proper condition of a creature is to be near God. When you're near God, you are the most solid, steady, peaceful person around, right? The kind of person our families need, the kind of person our neighbours need, the kind of person our workmates need. And we're not talking about people who are in denial about the really hard things of life. We're not saying that there aren't hard things that make our heads spin. We just are more still in the core of who we are. Why? Because we're near to Christ. Because we feed on the bread of life and he brings nourishment and life to us. You with me? I'd like to pray for you. And maybe uh, I started doing this thing uh, at Restoration Church where I, I do these guided prayers. And I wonder if, um, I, I want to do that with you today. So if you're up for it, I'd love for you to stand with me. Uh, we often stand when we pray. And if you're, um, if you're up for it, uh, just encourage you to close your eyes and just ask this question just, uh, uh, just to reflect um, what happened this week? what were the good things? what were the hard things? and just tell the Lord what was good and what was hard.
You're in a situation this week where you couldn't manage your way out. What was it like? Tell the Lord what it was like if you had one of those this week. And tell him that you didn't like it if you didn't. Think a little bit more and meditate a little bit more. Where God's present everywhere but what parts of your last week could Jesus would you would you have liked Jesus to be more personally present why don't you tell him you could tell him that you um would have liked him in some of those places and you could say sorry to him for not inviting him in. What's on tomorrow? What have you got coming up this week? what's on your heart for this week why don't you tell God what's on your heart for this week Jesus, um, we need you more than the closest person to you right now knows. And we don't just want you to be around because we have things that you want, that we want you to do for us. We just really like you. And it's just really good when you're around. We don't like you not being around. We don't like the wilderness. We don't like solitary places. Even if it is in the middle of people where we're really busy and trying to make things go, it can just feel solitary. Jesus, I don't like solitary places. I don't like to be where you're not. You, would you come really near to us this week? Would you, would you be the bread of life for us this week and nourish us and put a spring in our step and put hope in our days this week, no matter what's happening? Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, Or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, 
please visit cityonahill.com.au.